Welcome to the Christchurch Oceanside Podcast, a faith community on Vancouver Island within the Anglican Network in Canada. We invite you to check out our website at ChristchurchOceanside.ca, or if you're on Vancouver Island, join us on a Sunday in the News Bay. Today's message is brought to you by our pastor, Father Ryan Matchett. We hope you enjoy. Bless you. This week's reading from the Holy Scriptures is from Psalm 112, beginning in verse 1 and ending in verse 10. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news, His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. This is our story, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, my friends and fellow followers of the way of Jesus, that's Pastor Ryan here, and I'm excited to invite you back to our last session on building our lives on the rock, this summary parable that Jesus gives for the Sermon on the Mount. Today, I want to wrap things up with this psalm, Psalm 112, because I think it captures a kind of core subconscious question for a lot of us. What does a life that follows Jesus's teaching look like? Like when we pull all these things together, all these different teachings go, how does a, a life that follows this, that lives by this, that enjoys this, what does it look like? And I thought, you know, my fav- this is one of my favorite Psalms. Psalm 112, and it gives us a list of like 10 things in 10 verses 
that I think kind of summarize what this life looks like that's built on, that's founded on the rock. Verse 1 says that a profile of this kind of life is a good life. Verse 2 talks about legacy. Verse 3, wealth. Verse 4 talks about salvation. Verse 5 talks about generosity. Verse 6, stability. Verse 7, confidence. Verse 8, triumph. Verse 9, love. And verse 10, justice. That's a pretty solid summary when you think about it, to go, yeah, that's that actually sounds like the profile of the kind of life that I want, a good life with legacy and wealth and salvation and generosity and stability and confidence and triumph and love and justice. These are, those are pretty darn good things. So let's just begin this journey of walking through these verses together today, prayerfully, reflectively, But honestly, I would encourage that we seek to do it with a sense of joy and anticipation. Now, let me give one quick caveat before I start verse one. Um, As you know, I have five daughters. And so when we do scripture readings, the discussion often comes up about the pronouns that are used by the writers of the scriptures, you know, using male pronouns predominantly because it's male writers. And as well as that kind of historical piece where we use male pronouns to um, to describe all of humanity, right? Mankind. Um, and so here's the recommendation I give my girls and the recommendations I, w- I would give you is that what's helpful, rather than having to do this work constantly of going... Um, him and her or his and hers and, um, and and trying to switch things up to make sure that we get all pronouns at once. What I recommend instead is actually a Christ-centered reading of the scripture to go, let wherever there's a his um, word or a him word or a he word, let those point us to Jesus through which we know we all woman and man, child, young and old, etc., we all participate in Jesus, in union with Jesus. So that's how I'd recommend it. And to be honest, that's how I teach through this scripture today, is to go, whenever there's a his or a him or a he, I see Jesus first, and then we're talking about the implications and benefits that come because of him. Now, verse 1 says, the first thing in a profile of a righteous person, which the the title in my ESV here is that the righteous will never be moved, says this, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. I love that it begins with a praise offering because it sets the stage here to go, this is rejoicing. Because the righteous person's life has a clear sense of the goodness of God and a confidence in it. So their life story, so to speak, if you're going to summarize their life, begins with praise the Lord. And we'll see verse after verse after verse why this is the case. 
Then it goes on to say, blessed and happy is the one who fears the Lord. I find the best word to describe what we mean by fears the Lord is respects the Lord. This is a person who knows what jobs are God's and what jobs are theirs. So there's a respect, a fear that goes, you are God, you're the creator, I am the creation. So the the righteous person is blessed because they respect the Lord and their delight, their happiness is in doing good. And the reason I say good is because it's this belief that his commandments, his will, his way, his requirements for humanity, his vision for us, we believe, we trust from him, is a good one. So think of how perfectly this describes Jesus. In Mark chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus heals somebody. And then the crowds, it says this, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. Isn't that a wonderful descriptor of who Jesus is? Is that he lives his life and relates to people in such a way that it makes everyone else go, wow. They're astonished. They marvel and say he has done all things well. Everything he does is good. And I know that it can be easy to go, well, I can't live that perfect life. But this is a beautiful picture of the character of God enfleshed in Jesus, who just is pure, altogether goodness. And this really does show why we trust the commandments so much is we're going, this is the heart of God when lived out. And we see this in Jesus's humanity. So when God's divine commandments are given to us, we go, yeah, this makes sense. We see it at work in Jesus. But what Jesus models here in his whole life is perfect respect for the Father's will, submission to the Father's plan, and genuinely, personally passionate about fulfilling it. And his following and fulfilling of God's commandments is not externally motivated, it's inwardly generated. Now, our journey into this reality looks a little different as we have to begin by being honest with not wanting to. Be honest about our resistance to much of God's commandments and learning that real joy is going to be found within them. It's a long journey for us. But what we see in Jesus, the truly righteous person, is actually the joy that comes out of it. And our fear of the Lord, our respect of God, begins with recognizing that only God can generate the change within us that we really long for. Only God can set a truly good vision for our lives, and only God can truly fulfill the human heart. Jesus models what that looks like, and what it looks like is a happy, loving person. So for us, though, this is the vision we want to be, and we want it to be able to be set of our lives. They're blessed because they respect God, fear God, and greatly delight in his commandments, his vision. I want to come to a place where I greatly delight, where I know my definition of happiness looks like God's vision of goodness. And I think as I get older and older and older and keep following Jesus, I'm finding it more and more.
things that I used to like kind of dabble in. Maybe I was hesitant to let go of things of my old life. I now just find these are just incredibly unsatisfying. I'm not happy here. And this is part of the inner conversation is going, I don't want to keep having anything to do with this because I just get no joy out of it. But Jesus and his goodness and his vision for the world and things like prayer, I actually go, this is enjoyable. This actually does fulfill me and does make me happy. But this kind of life that respects God and has delight in his vision and in his commandments, verse 2 says, will have legacy. That his offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. So put these two things together. Jesus' perfect righteousness results in, verse 2, Jesus' offspring being mighty in the land, and the whole generation of his will be blessed. So his fruitfulness goes beyond just himself. And this is key. I think if there's anything we see in the Sermon on the Mount, this is a really key point, is to go, the true law of Jesus fulfilled, needs Jesus to fulfill it. But the second thing is that the true law is predominantly about relationships with other people. And so true righteousness leads to blessing in other people. If you're truly blessed, then you will create blessing in other people. Though true goodness is cultivated internally, it is not insular. It's about creating offspring and fruitfulness and in case already you start to like pull back from this and go well I'm not married or I can't have kids or whatever or maybe I had kids and it you know they're they're not living a blessed life they've walked away from the Lord and from goodness take courage and encouragement from this because Jesus's offspring are not children Jesus' offspring is a multiplying of brothers and sisters that are the Father's children. And so it's this idea of like living in your adoptedness, your sonship, your um, favored belovedness, is then to lead other people into that belovedness. So much so that the psalmist says the whole generation that the upright lives within will be blessed by the upright. That's how much blessing comes on them that it becomes a blessing to a whole generation. Verse 3 tells us that not only will the righteous or the upright have a legacy beyond themselves, but their life will be marked by wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Now stick with me here. I know it's easy to read this with the eyes of like worldly wealth, but having steeped in the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' teaching on where true treasures lie, we see that the true wealth and true riches are not of this world, but are of the kingdom. We see in Jesus that any home, regardless of its economic or social status, can be full of wealth and riches in the grace of the kingdom. And so a life on the rock should never be viewed as limited or impoverished 
or victimized or without resources because a life on the rock should have a clear view of the fact that true wealth and true riches are of the character and grace and accomplishments of God and Christ. So what we're shooting for then is to cultivate a home that's rich in the benefits of the gospel. We want it to be rich in the fruits of the Spirit. We want it to be rich ultimately in love and in connection with God. That's our definition, right? Our true treasure where our heart lies is Jesus himself. And so no family, no person should ever look down on their household, the life that they built based on material things. They should look at their life for its supreme purpose, that their house would be filled with wealth and riches in the gospel. And it says that then his righteousness endures forever. Because remember, Jesus came in his life. He never owns anything. Though he has rights to everything, all the wealth that he cultivates and showcases, and even the wealth that he will showcase for eternity, is of of, of deeper attributes than gold and silver and money. It's of emotional wholeness. It's a beauty of thought. It's of love and care for others. It's about cultivating true goodness. And the idea that our goodness could last forever comes only if our righteousness has been founded and grown in him who truly endures forever. Verse 4 says the next piece of the profile is salvation. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. So let's pull this apart a bit. For the upright, those who stand in and stand for and stand up for goodness, the psalmist says the light dawns for them in the darkness. So the upright do not avoid the darkness, or can't avoid, I should say, whether it be a darkness of their own making the darkness of others, or the darkness at work within the world, the only way to truly become upright and righteous, to build your house upon the rock, is through a humble recognition of the darkness that you are already living in. The darkness that's in you, that's at work in you. The upright are those who do what is right in the hard situations. And evil always promises an easier way out, but fails to achieve it. I think this whole promise is about going, look, we're in a broken world. We're broken people. We have sinful hearts. We're in rebellion against goodness. And we got to be honest about that. And we participate in darkness and in evil. But the truly upright respect God, look to God, trust in God. And for them, light dawns in that darkness. So the upright, it's not that they never have to experience darkness. Instead, the psalmist says, just like everyone else, darkness comes. 
but the upright who trust in the Lord can count on his light dawning. And the upright keep doing what's right and what's good in the dark while they wait for God's salvation. It's getting to the point now where when I'm in a dark spot or a dark place or I see darkness at work in my life, I'm not just trying to get out of it anymore. I'm trying to slow it down so I can do it right because I know I don't want to do it again. There's no way out of darkness but through it. But what we need, the only way out of darkness, is truly by the light. And the nature of the light is actually to come to dark places and turn them into pits from pits of despair into gardens of his delight. Now, the outcome of this is quite spectacular. Because when the upright who've been to the darkness and have waited for the light and did the right and the good things and trusted that God's salvation would come for them, they come out of that darkness gracious, merciful, and righteous. That the light meeting them in the darkness actually produces those characteristics. And let's be honest, gracious people have been through the ringer. Merciful people have received mercy. Righteous people aren't just born, they're made in difficulty. Verse 5 continues on and says that it's about the righteous life on the rock is one of generosity. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For any of God's creatures, especially those who have been through the darkness and been saved by the light, generosity is essential for integrity, for righteousness. I think we need to use generosity to best understand what we mean, what God means by righteousness, by holiness. Because we only exist and continue to live because of the generosity we have received from him. So the inner life, which has received his generous salvation, must live live out an outer life that's generous in order to be true to itself. If you've been saved by grace and that's who you are, then you have to live generously to be truly yourself in this world. The psalmist goes on to say that, To live with this kind of integrity, to go, if I'm truly saved, that I'm living generously towards others, your life will go well. And and I, I think this doesn't mean that there isn't darkness and there isn't hardship, but I think generosity in all things leads to more peace and favor than greed does or selfishness, because greed results in conflict, whereas generosity really results in goodwill. When Jesus talks about lending in the Sermon on the Mount, he lists a few things. Do not refuse the one who asks you. Do so without expecting repayment, let alone interest. And give what is asked and more to the person who sues and attacks you. This is like the vision Jesus has for how we live towards the world because this is how Jesus has lived towards us. 
Generosity is God's definition of how we are meant to conduct our affairs, which according to this verse in verse 5, is with justice. Justice, in God's eyes, is living with generosity. Not getting what you deserve. Justice looks like being generous towards others in the midst of their failures and even evil. Verse 6 then takes us further to say this kind of life leads to stability. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. Look at that line, never be moved. can be understood as a negative thing when thinking of someone you're, you're stuck in a dis disagreement with. But the immovability referenced here is not a stubbornness or hard-heartedness, but trustfulness and dependence and soft-heartedness before God. Softness and trustful dependence upon God makes you less threatened by other people. It makes you undefensive and definitely not insistent with others. The one who is fully dependent on God does not fear other people. And those who aren't fearful of other people will not be moved by other people. The psalmist again says they'll be remembered forever. The quality of a righteous life endures beyond their own days by those who experience it and has an eternal quality that will be eternally celebrated. Verse 7 goes on to say that the righteous person who builds their life on the rock will have confidence. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. I'll be honest, this is a this is a lifelong verse for me. One, I wish to live. I'm not there yet. But this is the goal. Every time it comes up in the daily office, I'm like, ah, this is what I want. But it starts from back to front, really. Trusting in the Lord is what makes one able to not be afraid of bad news. Trusting in the Lord is what gives someone a firm heart. Ultimately, what gives a person this kind of confidence Knowing that Christ is king over all things. Knowing that there is no evil, sin, chaos, or darkness that Christ has not conquered. Knowing that there is no pit that Christ cannot raise you out of. Knowing that all things will be redeemed and used for your good. Knowing that Christ knows you and calls you his beloved. There's nothing that can come at your life that can be of any true threat to you if Christ has you. There is no news that can remove me from his love, destroy me, or define me forever. Nothing is as big as Jesus. Verse 8 quadruples down <laughs> about triumph. That his heart is steady, he will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Notice again the ups and downs and the movements within the psalm itself. What if we embrace this as part of maturity and holiness and stability, as knowing that things are not always going to go well, 
knowing that there's going to be pits and darkness and adversaries and attacks and pain and loss and hardship, but accepting that. Why would we accept that? Because we know, because we have that confidence that we can trust in him for all those potential situations, but also that they will end in triumph that our hearts are steady and we're not afraid because we know we will look in triumph on our adversaries. Think of how Christ exemplifies this in the Garden of Gethsemane. The immensity of the task that awaits him never discourages him away from the Father. He's steady by pleading to the Father to remove him from the situation. Right? Steadiness is not that you never have need or never are shaken, or never feel pain, or any of those things. Steadiness is knowing where to go with it. So he's steady when he pleads. He's steady when he cries for help. And then he's steady enough to say, but not my will, but yours be done. That's true steadiness of heart. And not being afraid, I think, is modeled perfectly when it's said that Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. There's a confidence in the outcome despite the present darkness. And Jesus knows this always, that he will look in triumph over his enemies. Do we have that confidence in Jesus for our adversaries and our enemies? I don't mean people, more so situations. Can we trust that Jesus will vindicate us, validate us, and will stand with him on the other side of this, either in this life or the next, in triumph? That his gospel won, and that we are in him, and that this situation had no eternal negative impact. Verse 9 is a kind of epitaph to show where this kind of life leads to, and it's one of love. He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. Part of what this verse speaks to is that at no point do the ups and downs of this life justify selfishness. Because we know the righteous person that's being talked about in this psalm has had a lot of highs and lows, a lot of difficulties that only the light could save them from, and adversaries. But none of that was used to justify selfishness. The concern of the righteous is upon always the misfortune of others. It never turns inward in self-pity or despair like I do but instead always upwards to God and outwards towards the needy. Distribution of wealth originates in God's nature. It's showcased in Christ's incarnation and crucifixion and is distributed to you and to me by his spirit that you and I would distribute it to others. The cross of Christ exemplifies this type of righteousness because at the moment of his greatest amount of pain and loss, Jesus says things like, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And today you will be with me in paradise. 
And to John, he calls out with his final breaths, this is your mother. He's caring about the needs of his mother and his brother in that moment. It's wild. It is this quality of his character that is lifted up and exalted, his horn, by God the Father. The Father is lifting up Jesus, saying, you deserve all honor, glory, and authority. Because of what? Because of your loving generosity. The last verse of this psalm ends thinking about some different people. But what it gives us is a final vision of justice. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. The qualities and works that we've looked at so far are not celebrated by everybody. Rejection of these works reveals people as wicked, actually. And we should believe them when they show us who they are. They'll gnash their teeth in revulsion at goodness. They'll call generosity foolishness. They'll look down on trust as weakness and goodness as naivety. But they will melt away before the goodness and glory of God as a candle does before a true flame. There is no true substance to evil and no real strength. It might boast, but it has no true value. It has no integrity. It has no endurance. Wicked desires, when held up against pure desire, Desires that are weighty with goodness, which will go on for eternity and create impact now and for generations that endure beyond darkness and despair. Prove the nearsighted and shallow nature of wicked desires as they fizzle out. They're weeds compared to trees. Wicked desire dies and shrivels while the upright only begin to grow in this life. This is the promise of the psalmist and that we see ultimately in Jesus is that all evil spent itself on him and created no real enduring impact. His goodness far triumphed over it and endures to this day. That's the promise of your life your life on the rock. The upright person or house is upright only because it has been founded on the rock. All upright people and lives begin by recognizing their present fallenness. But the life that's built out of that honesty of going, my life is a shipwreck. My life's fallen apart. This area of my life is broken beyond my ability to repair it. The promise here of the righteous person is that the light will come and build them back up into a good life, a life of legacy and wealth, salvation, generosity, stability, confidence, triumph, love, and justice. But all of those things are the product of the rock. It all reflects his steadfast love and faithfulness. And so the key 
To a stable life is to lean upon the rock with everything that you are, everything that you have, and everything that you wish to be. This is the way of Jesus. This is what's on offer. And my prayer would be that your heart has been stirred to faith in him for your particular messy, broken, sinful, rebellious situation. That you go, my mess does not disqualify. My mess qualifies me to receive of this good news. Instead of looking down on it in despair, you would look on it with hope, seeing what Jesus wants to make it into. So let me pray for you as we close. Heavenly Father, we've heard the good news from your scriptures today. Hopefully we've seen Jesus a bit more clearly and seen the vision of salvation of what he offers for our lives. But I ask now that you would move in our hearts towards faith. Give us the courage to believe that our lives might share in the salvation of Jesus, that our particular brokenness and particular pain might share in the salvation of Jesus. And so I pray your blessing upon them, that their faith in you would lead to a good life in Jesus, a legacy that endures beyond their years, wealth that cannot be found in material things, salvation and testimonies of your goodness, generosity towards the world, a stability and immovability in the face of harsh storms, a confidence in you to save them from their adversaries, that their life would be marked by the triumph of the resurrection, would be overflowing with genuine love, and all evil that would oppose or attack or seek to destroy them would find justice in you on the day of days. We pray this in the name of the rock, Jesus Christ. Amen.